Would you pray with me, please? Father, in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, we know we cannot be holy on our own. But your holiness is sufficient to cover us, O Lord. Your sacrifice is sufficient and efficacious enough that all our sins are removed from us, Father, and we are left white as snow, cleansed by your righteousness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking our place on the cross that we deserve by our own guilt. Thank you so much, Father, for a wonderful plan of salvation, but such sacrifice is beyond our comprehension. Help us to receive you and accept you as our only God and Savior and King, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we offer ourselves to you and we ask you to teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good morning, everyone. If you brought your Bibles, please open them to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. You can also use the insert that is in your bulletins, or you can use uh, Bibles that are in the pews in front of you. This morning, we return again to the area of the Jordan River. Sometimes it seems that we're moving on, and then we go back a few steps. <laughs> we return to the Jordan River area where Jesus was baptized, identifying himself with us. He had no sin to be washed at the river, but he was once again identifying with our need and his humanity and our humanity. It is here at the Jordan where Jesus hears those words, and I preached about this probably a couple of weeks ago, uh, actually last week, where he hears the voice of his Father as he comes out of the water, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then after the baptism, we are now looking at 40 days during that baptism, after that baptism period. We're in that 40 day, days span of time after the baptism. One of the things that I think it's important for us to, to understand and to realize is that it is the Spirit of God it is the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness. And we could, we could have a whole theological uh, teaching just on those, on those words or in that idea. 
that it is the very Spirit of the living God that leads him into the wilderness of Judea. The wilderness of Judea, probably many caves, uninhabited possibly by most people unless you were hiding from the law. The wilderness of Judea may have been a place where many thieves abounded and brigands just used it as places where they could hide. Because very few people would want to venture into the area of the wilderness. But it is also a very arid place where nothing grew but rocks. It wasn't a place that was very inviting. It was actually a place of loneliness and aloneness. I would almost say it was a place of death, not of life, not of vegetation, not of greenery, but a day, a, a place of dryness. Living there had to have affected the way you lived, the way you thought, the way you dealt with things. I, I want to make sure that you realize the connection between these 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness and the 40 years of Israel in their wilderness. They were in their 40 years of wilderness experience because of disobedience. Jesus was in his 40 days of wilderness experience because of obedience. They experienced the harshness of the wilderness of Sinai where nothing grew. When they were hungry, it had to be God that gave them manna. It had to be God that gave them quail. It had to be God that struck the rock so they could have drinking water. Their 40 years of wilderness experience would mark them forever. And they would always look to that experience throughout the, the entire scriptures. There's a constant reminder. Look at where you were and where we, I brought you from and where I brought you to. We are now with Jesus in his wilderness and the, the harshness of the experience of 40 days of living in nearly complete isolation, alone with God, the wild beasts and wild animals, possibly the heat, the dust, the loneliness, It is here where Jesus begins his ministry. We, we sometimes want to see the ministry of Jesus beginning in Galilee. 
The ministry of Jesus begins in the wilderness. It is his place of battle. Jesus is brought to the wilderness for a battle with his old enemy, the serpent. He had a battle to fight that was personal. But it also was a battle to fight in our behalf. It was personal because the first son and daughter of God had failed. And now the Son of God was entering the world to save that son and daughter of God and the descendants of that son and daughters of God. And he had to go to battle with the devil for our souls, but also for his own personal battle. He begins his ministry by facing off with the devil. Genesis 3.15, you know in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall. In fact, Diane read today uh, through portion of that. When God comes and says, Adam, where are you? Which, by the way, doesn't mean that God didn't know what had happened. He knew. But it's important for men to come out of his shadows and come out of his boxes and acknowledge that he sinned. It is very, very important for us to come out to God. If we're ever going to be healed, if we're ever going to be cleansed, we have to come out and say, I have sinned against you. And that's really what was happening. But as, as God pronounces the curse upon the serpent, chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, God says this to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, the serpent's seed, and the woman's seed. And he, as a male, he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. From the beginning of Genesis, this battle that Jesus is about to enter into through the rest of his life is already prophesied and foretold. The son of a woman would fight the descendants of Satan. And the son of the woman will not come out of this battle unscathed. He will come up with his wounds and his pains and his bleeding, and Jesus did. But Satan was destroyed and stepped upon his, its head by that son, that descendant of a woman. And that is what is happening in this wilderness experience. A battle, a personal battle, and a, and a battle for you and for me to defend us and deliver us and declare the kingdom of God established in that battle, in that wilderness. Let me teach you a few things about temptation. 
because temptation is the tool of the devil because he keeps fighting. First thing I want you to know about temptation is that temptation is not of God. It is not of God. It is never of God. It will never be of God. Temptation's purpose is to cause you to fall and fail and to bring condemnation. That is never, ever, ever from God. In fact, James tells us in chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. If you ever feel tested by God to cause you to grow and to causing you holiness, and let me tell you, to growing and holiness don't come easy. They come through struggle. They come through failure. They come through getting up and reaching out for Jesus. But you do grow into holiness and into maturity. But God's intent when he tests you is to grow you, to test you, and to flex your muscles. Satan's intention when he tempts you is to destroy you. To cause you to fall, and to cause you to fail, and to bring about condemnation. God never has that intent. Therefore, he's not a tempter. The second thing I want you to learn about temptation is that temptation is not a sin. You with me? Temptation is not a sin. In fact, Hebrews tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted... But different from Adam and Eve, he did not give in to the temptation. So temptation of itself is not sin. Temptation must always be understood as an attack of Satan. An assault against you to try to hurt you. Let me give you four reasons why Satan wants to tempt you and cause you to fall. First reason behind temptation is that he wants to draw you away from your God. He wants to draw you away from your heavenly Father. He wants you to get so tired of failing and failing and failing that you just give up wanting to follow the Lord. He wants to so destroy in you, inside of you, that hunger and the thirst for God that you give up and give in, and you don't try to satisfy your soul with the Lord. He wants to destroy your desire, your hunger, and your thirst for the living God. He wants to draw you away from obedience He wants to draw you away from the Word. 
He wants to draw you away as far as he can from any influence that God might have in your life that might draw you unto him, unto his love, unto his forgiveness, unto his mercy. He wants to draw it out of you. He doesn't want you to desire it. He doesn't want you to look for it. That's one reason he wants to tempt you. The second reason he wants to tempt you is because he wants to impede, dwarf, derail God's purpose for your life. None of us are born into this life without God having a mighty, glorious purpose for your life. He wants to use us. And the closer we walk with him, the more we will see God using us in so many different ways. Satan wants to take away the service of God in our hearts. He wants to dwarf all that God wants us to achieve in his name, to his glory and to his praise. He wants to destroy the plan of God for this earth through the church. He wants to diminish it. And if he allows some of it, it's so dwarfed, so small, that so insignificant that the world doesn't notice that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he keeps us happy that we're coming to church. But at a minimal. Instead of the fire of God in us that causes us to want to serve and to show the world that Jesus Christ is Lord in our homes, in our families, in our ministries, in our jobs. He wants to keep us content at a minimal. Because he wants to dwarf, destroy, twist our purpose. None of us is born without a purpose from Almighty God. A greater purpose than what we think we're here for. The people you touch in this life will live forever because of you. Eternity is in your lips and in your hearts and in your, in your hands. And you give it to others and they will live into eternity because of your little life. Because of my little puny life of whatever number of years, I still will affect people for eternity. And he wants to dwarf and stop that in me and in you. Third purpose, that Satan throws temptations our way. To deny God the glory and honor due him. Because one of our purposes in life is to bring glory to the Father. The world will know he sent us by who we are in this world. And we bring glory to him. And if Satan can destroy it and change it, he's stealing from God the honor and the worship that is only due to him. Fourth reason why temptations come our way from the devil to destroy you at all costs. He wants to destroy your sonship, your daughtership. He wants to destroy you because he is the destroyer. Because his future is not heaven, but the lake of fire. And he wants us to the lake of fire and not to the Father's house. 
He wants to destroy you, your destiny, and your future. He's not for you. He's against you. And so he uses temptations to cause us to fail, to cause us to fall. In fact, when I looked at all the names of Satan in the Bible, see if you like any of these. The deceiver, the destroyer, the father of lies, the enemy, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, the tempter, and the murderer. Those are the names the Bible uses for this thing, this entity, this being that Jesus Christ teaches us to call the devil, the serpent. I don't know any of you, because I don't, I don't know, I, I might know some, but I, I do know about the 12 Steps. And I have read a little bit on the 12 steps. People, you know, people with troubles with alcohol or drug addiction or sex addiction or whatever the things are out there that attacks the people of God. There's an acronym that is used, which is the word HALT. HALT. Basically, what they teach you to look out for is that you are the weakest and the most likely to fall back into the addiction or back into temptation, one, when you are too hungry. When you are very hungry, and it's sometimes it's not about food, sometimes we're hungry about other things. But when you are hungry, you are weakened, and you want to satisfy your hunger with whatever you can find. When you are very hungry, you are physically in trouble. You are physically weak. You are physically looking for something to satisfy that hunger. That's the H. The A is when you are too angry. Have you ever been so angry in your life that you just say, stop it. I'm not ever going to do anything good anymore. I'm just going to act on that anger. And it could be striking somebody. It could be hating somebody. It could be saying the wrong thing. But anger leads to so many other possibilities. Because you give yourself permission to satisfy that anger with something. Where you're too angry, you're likely to become what I call spiritually suicidal. And you just don't care about doing the right thing no more. You've tried it too long. You've had it with righteousness. You've had it with good. You've had it with God. Because you're just angry, too angry at something that you, maybe you don't even understand. Halt when you are too hungry or too, you are too angry or you are too lonely. There's nothing worse than loneliness because we were made for relationship. 
And when you feel alone, that nobody cares, and nobody understands, you're going to look for ways to satisfy that loneliness, perhaps with the wrong relationships. When you're too lonely, not accountable to anybody, nobody's praying for you. You don't have anyone to go to and say, I'm, I think I'm reaching a limit here. Would you pray with me? Even a phone call. My brothers, I need you. I'm in trouble. I need prayer. When you don't have somebody that you can call and you're alone and troubles come your way, you don't know where to turn. But you're going to turn somewhere. Hope. If you feel extremely lonely, alone, afraid, and misunderstood, halt. And the T is when you are too tired. When you are so tired that you have no more defenses, no more desire to fight, no more desire to try. These are the times when an alcoholic is in trouble. At any of these stages, and, and when the four of them hit, you are facing the perfect storm. But it's not just the alcoholic. I think all sinners, when those things are prevalent in our lives, we are very likely to abandon truth and obedience because the pain is too much. The hurt is too much, the loneliness is too much, and the big gaping hole is too big, and we've got to fill it with something. And that's where Satan has a day, a play day with you. A play day with you. Satan knows your weaknesses more than you know your weaknesses. He knows where to attack you. And I've said to you before that every human being has some kind of a monster that he or she fights. We all have a brokenness somewhere. You need to know where your brokenness is. Is it sexual? Is it alcohol? Is it gossip? Is it pride? Is it attachment to money? Is it... An anger that you have never dealt with and therefore all your relationships turn out problematic. You have nobody. What is your monster? Because Satan knows it. And Peter says that the devil is like a roaring lion just crushed and waiting to, to jump at you. He's just waiting for the moment, the opportunity... To just jump at you. The devil is like a roaring lion just waiting to see whom he can devour. Temptations come, and I'll go quickly through this. When you're not spending time with God, you are weak. We, when you have not had enough rest, you are weak. When life is difficult at home, when you have a problem with your spouse, and you don't even want to sleep in the same bed, 
least of all hear, heard, or him sleeping next to you and breathing? You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. When you turn the other way, you don't even want to feel them next to you. Times of change in your life, sometimes you're vulnerable. When you're having problems at work, or financially you feel that you're failing, you can, you can be weak if you're blinded. When you have a major spiritual victory, Satan would love to knock you down at that very moment. Amen. When you think you're mighty and strong, you just came out of a wonderful weekend or a wonderful experience, you've preached the gospel, you've brought someone to the Lord, boy, he wants to knock you down. He also wants to knock you down when life is just smooth and nothing is happening. And he's just wanting to knock us down at every opportunity. Temptation is unavoidable, isn't it? It's unavoidable. Because he's the tempter. And because we're believers. And you know why temptation is unavoidable? Because we were created by God as not self-sufficient. Like him. Because we are not self-sufficient, we always going to have a need of somebody or something. You understand? We're always going to have a need. We have need, personal needs. We have financial needs. We have emotional needs. We have spiritual needs. And because we're always open to a need out there, we become very vulnerable to a temptation that says, I can meet that need. Are you hungry, Jesus? Let me give you bread. Do you want glory? I've got the glory. Let me show you the holy city with all its glory. I can make you king. I can even give you all the glory of all the nations in the world. All you have to do is bow down and, 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 and worship me. Amen? And those same temptations are ours. We have a lot of hungers, a lot of needs for pride, a lot of needs for glory. The temptations that Jesus faced, we can easily identify in our own lives. Satan wants to tempt us, to destroy us. But you know, God made us with needs so that we can need him. If he had made us completely self-supporting, we would never have a need of our Father, of loving him and needing him and wanting him and desiring him. So he makes us not like stones or robots. He makes us flesh with a heart of flesh so that we can love him. And when you love, you're going to have needs. But the devil takes advantage of our creation and our creaturelessness, our creatureness. James, I, I love this passage. I just want to share it with you. James chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Each one is tempted when he or she is drawn away 
by his or her own desire. And enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is full grown, it brings forth death. You know what it means? It means this. The desire is inside of us. We all have desires. Whatever that is. The hole in our hearts makes us hungry, thirsty for something. So Satan knows where my hole is. And so he entices me with something like Eve was enticed with the fruit. He entices me with something that promises to somehow feed that need. That's not sin. Sin is when I grab that thing and accept Satan's promise versus God's promise. And I take whatever that is, thinking it is better for me, when in reality leads me to destruction. Once I grab it, and I eat of it, and I apply it, sin is born. And when my sin becomes continuous in my life, it leads to death. Complete, outer death apart from God. That's what James is talking about. Let me share with you a poem that I found many years ago, and I have it written in my Bible. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. But it all begins with a thought, with an enticement. Because Satan will come to you in two directions. First, I want to you be very aware, he'll come to you through your mind. The body cannot sin by itself. But what I put in comes out. He will attack your mind. That's why Paul to the Romans says, the renewal of our minds. There's so many passages that I can quote to you about the mind because the mind is one of the most susceptible things. What goes in through the mind, through what you receive, through what you see on TV, to what you see in the movies, to what you receive from the world, what you receive from the culture, whatever comes into your mind is going to sometime affect you and it's going to come out in your actions in some way. The other way that sin comes in or temptation comes in is through the eyes. The sin of the eyes. You see things and you want them. That's why one of God's commandments is that you will not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's animals, your, your neighbor's anything. You will not covet, but coveting comes through the eyes. And coveting is really the foundation of the breaking of all of the other commandments. 
All the other commandments fail the moment your heart becomes covetous for something other than God. Then you will commit adultery. Then you will steal. Then you will kill. Then you will compromise the Sabbath. Then you will take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Then you will not honor your father and your mother. Because coveting is the beginning of the breaking. Coveting is idolatry. You make yourself the Lord. And your need is greater than obedience to Almighty God. You want to resist temptation? Guard your mind. And guard your eyes. Guard what you surround yourself with and who you surround yourself with. Guard what you see. Guard and look away. You may not be able to to, uh, avoid the first look, but you can certainly avoid the second look. The second look is intentional. The first look was unavoidable. But the second look is intentional. You want to see more of what you saw the first time. Guard your mind. What comes into you is what's going to come out. Fill your mind with the Lord. Seek the Lord. Pray. Fill your mind with the Word. Fill your, hum- your, your, your whole being with the Spirit of God. Invite God to take over. And primarily and above all, because we as human beings get tempted, and I don't care who you are, we fall. I say as what I said at the beginning, thanks be to God because of Jesus Christ. Because whenever we fall, the remedy of God is Him who died for us and whose blood takes away all our sins. It is He that makes us pure again, righteous again, and complete in the Lord. It is through Him that we have access to the Father, and never through our actions, because our actions are never good enough. It is the work of God, through His Son, that gives us entrance into the Father's house. Jesus was victorious over temptation and over sin. And we can be victorious in our own battles. And when we do fail, we run to the cross. We run to the cross. We don't accept the sin in our lives. We run to the cross that it can be washed away through the blood of Jesus. Is there an amen out there? You see, what I'm teaching you today, I know because I'm an expert. This is an expertise for me. Stand with me.